This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, you all re- remembered to come here today, and you all remembered how to get here, and you all have plans for what you're going to do after this meeting is over and later today, because that's what it's all about. Our, our world is a world of memories. Uh, we are our memories. Uh, we think about memory often about the past, but memory is really about the future because it enables us to use information that you gain in order to get along in life, and that's what it's all about. Well, I'm going to talk about some people for whom the future is not terribly important, but the past is awfully important, unusual people indeed. So there is the question of the very famous uh, psychologist, maybe the founder of modern psychology, William James, who said, of some experiences, no memory survives the instance of their passage. Of others, it is confined to a few moments, hours or days. Others may be recalled as long as life endures. Can we explain these differences? Why is it that, that you can remember right now exactly what I said, even with the intonation, you could mimic me, and tomorrow you're going to remember that there was a meeting that you came to and you're going to remember a few elements. Well, I'm going to... It's not like that for all people. There was a man named Daniel McCartney about whom a, an article was published in the Journal of Speculating Philosophy. So you probably subscribe to that journal. Journal of Speculative Philosophy, which I had never heard of until uh, somebody drew my attention to this. Um, who was um, tested in 1870 uh, by a a man who discovered that this individual claimed that he had a very strong memory of his personal experiences. So when he was uh, 54 years old in 1870, he was asked a lot of questions about his life, going back many, many years, back actually to the age of four years old. And... um, He responded in every case to the questions in two or three seconds. The the test was repeated several days later, and he responded with the same answers but not using the same words. That is, he he knew what what he could remember, but he used different words to say it. So what happened on um, October 8, 1828, Wednesday was cloudy and drizzling and rain. I carried dinner to my father where he was getting out coal. That was 42 years ago. Um, Let me run down. Let's take uh, April 4th, 1841. He answered in three seconds. It was a Sunday. It was rainy and muddy. General Harrison died that day. February 2nd, 1856. Two-second response. Saturday was most awful cold. It was the coldest day I ever see in my life. Records for Iowa February 4th indicated the coldest day in 1856. Now, that's the, the bottom. That's my interrogation because all of these are, are claims that people make, and you could make them up. You know, uh, what did you do in uh, uh, June 12th, 1993? And you could say, oh, I went shopping that day. I had a fight with my boyfriend or whatever. <laughs> and I wouldn't know whether that's true or not. So uh, to my uh, the limited ability that I had, I looked up the records for things that he said when he said it snowed or it rained. Um, on the day that he said it was a heavy snow, that was the heaviest day of sh- snowing in Iowa that year. On the day that it rained, uh, it was within two days of the date that he gave. So to the extent 
that we can validate these claims. Uh, they appear to be accurate. He appears to have a phenomenal memory of his personal experiences. But not a lot is known about him. I'm just reporting what was reported in that rather obscure journal. Now, I didn't know anything about him. I had never read that article. As a matter of fact, the article was sent to me by a wag who, who, after we started publishing our work on highly superior autobiographical memory, said essentially, he said, yeah, 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 you didn't know about this, you know? And he sent me the article uh, from this journal that I do not subscribe to. <laughs> and I haven't, I haven't found it on PubMed. Um, so in 2000, a young woman, a 32-year-old named Jill Price, sent me an email and um, said she had a memory problem and would like to meet me. Well, I wrote back to her and said, this is a research institute, not a clinic, but I can direct you to it. What would you think when somebody said, I have a memory problem? <laughs> right? Well, she said, oh, no, no, that's not it. My, my memory problem is that I don't forget. So uh, I decided to meet with her. I, I really thought that, it was, that she probably didn't. I really did think this was a very strange behavior, but I agreed to meet with her. And um, I, uh, when she came, since we have never seen anybody like that or tested, I didn't know what to do. So I had been given for uh, Christmas, this is 2000, and I had been given a coffee table book, which is about this thick, which is um, newspaper uh, reports uh, for every day in the last century. You may have seen them. They were around in that time. And so all I did was open that book and ask her questions. I turned to a page, and, uh, which was uh, after the age of 13, because she said that's when she began to have this ability. And I questioned her. And these are the kinds of, of things that I ask. I ask about an event. I said, when was there a uh, major San Diego plane crash? How many of you remember the plane crash in September 25th, 1978? How many of you would have remembered the date if I hadn't said that? All right. Uh, when did the Persian Gulf War start? Wednesday, January 1691, and so on down the line. The one at the bottom I want to draw your attention to, I asked her when was the Iranian invasion of the U.S. Embassy, and um, she said November 4th, 1979, and I was looking at the article right in front of me, and I said, well, you have it pretty close. You're several days off. And she said, no, 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 this is the date. And I said, well, it's written here right in the book. And she said, oh, well, the book is wrong. <laughs> well, it turns out that I was looking at the date of the article that was written, and down in the body of the article was the true, the, the valid uh, time, which is November 4th, 1979, but it was her assurance that w was important. That the book was wrong, she said. Now, we also, or I also asked her about um, dates. I gave her a date, and she had to tell me what happened on that date. So August 16, 1977, uh, Elvis uh, died. Uh, let's go down November 4, 1979, and uh, that's right, the Iranian invasion of the U.S. Embassy. October 5th. Um, 1983, uh, bombing in Beirut, Northridge earthquake, and Lockerbie plane crash. And so these are all accurate. These are her responses. And I'm looking at the book. So I knew the, the answers, but I knew them because I was looking at them. Now, uh, we, we, we can't take these statements um, uh, as being valid. As a matter of fact, uh, she says that she remembers being in, in a crib uh, when she was an infant. Well, 
I'm not going to accept that. We have no way of validating. And, and besides that, plenty of people uh, see videos of themselves in cribs or pictures of themselves. And so uh, that's not going to do the job. We have to validate it. So uh, fortunately, in her case, she kept a diary for many years of her life. And whenever she made a claim, we were able to untie a little pink ribbon that was tied around this little book that she had, lots of books, a stack like that, open it up and see if what she said about it uh, was accurate. Uh, At one time, uh, we asked her to give us the the dates of the last uh, 20 Easter's. How many of you remember the date of the last Easter? Well, she told us the, the date of the last 20 Easter's. She also told us without asking what she did on each of those dates. And we could check that out because we're able to peek into her diaries and validate some of that uh, information. Now, I'm going to show you some um, other subjects. Let me, I have to say that we, we got a little publicity uh, uh, inadvertently sort of uh, we went on NPR, disguised her name, but talked about this a little bit, and then a little bit of a newspaper publicity. So we be- began to get subjects. And uh, by the time uh, uh, 2010 rolled around, uh, we had five subjects. Now, uh, they were filmed by, um, uh, on 60 Minutes on December 19, 2010, and that was a Sunday. It's, health, it's helpful that 60 Minutes is always on a Sunday. That's just a little clue. I did, I did uh, oh, well, I'll go on. I don't, I don't want to show off anymore. Um, so I'm going to show you uh, a, a clips from um, uh, TV programs uh, in which we had this. The first one is Louise Owen, who is a professional violinist in New York, a very high-level violinist, uh, appears frequently uh, both uh, in groups and also uh, solos, and, and is a really very charming person. So I'll show you her first. McGaw says this type of memory is completely new to science, so he and his colleagues have had to devise their own tests, like this one on public events. October 19th, 1987. It's a Monday. Uh, that was the day of the big stock market crash, and the cellist Jacqueline Dupre died that day. The Berlin Wall falls on what day? Uh, November 9th, 1989, which was a Thursday. Christopher Reeve's accident occurred on what day? Uh, It was Saturday, May 27th, uh, 1995. And when were the Oscars held in 1999? In 1999. Sunday, March 21st. Yes. Perfect. Note that she didn't say, give me a moment, I'll think about it. (laughs) (laughs) She describes it as a Google search. And when she talks about it, she uses expression. She says, it's just there. It just comes up like that. And you can see the ease with which she did it, the smile on her face, and the speed of response, uh, responding within a second or two. It's right there. Let's move back in time now to uh, 1990. It rained on several days in January and February. Can you name the dates on which it rained? Mm. Um. <laughs> Believe it or not, she could. Let's see. It was slightly rainy and cloudy on January 14th, 15th. It was very hot the weekend of the 27th, 28th. No rain. 
We checked the official weather records. It rained very hard on Sunday, February 4th. And she was right. All right, that was 20 years ago uh, from the time that I asked her. I was asking her, when did it rain in New York City? 20 years ago in January, February, and she nailed every day. Now, this is important because for many of the other examples that I've shown, people could memorize. That is, if you set your mind to it, you could memorize things, and you spend all of your time memorizing experiences like learning a list of words or whatever, I suppose. I chose this example because it's highly unlikely, unless you want to challenge me on this, that she sat around for 20 years saying, I must remember the days in which it rained in New York on those two months. Now, we have also, uh, by luck, uh, found several children who have this ability. And this is important also because of the uh, possible interpretation that these people have the ability because they spend a lot of time rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing. Um, children don't have much time to do that. So I'm going to show you a couple of uh, fairly young children who have ability which is just as good as our adults. Counselor, age 10. What day of the week was Halloween 2011? Monday. That one I didn't even have to think about. New Year's Day 2010. Uh, Friday. Friday. I remember that because I was up all night at the Blues game. <laughs> That's when Jake was six. He lives in St. Louis, loves sports, and he is, in most respects, a typical 10-year-old. What happened, related to school, on January 30th, 2013? That day, I'm pretty sure... Oh, wait. That's a trick question. We didn't have school that day. <laughs> yeah, there was a huge lightning storm that last night. We're like, hey, we didn't have school that day. How's your day, Jake? 7th, 2012. Do you know what day of the week that was? That was a Sunday. You're right. There is exactly one child in the world other than Jake who's yeah. been identified so far with this ability, 11-year-old Tyler Hickenbottom. And in a fortuitous coincidence, Tyler happens to be an identical twin. He and his brother Chad share the same genes. Yeah, I think I might have worn an orange shirt. But surprisingly, not the same memory. No, that was in 2012 when... <laughs> Life can be tough. Um, this is very interesting. Uh, we are doing genetic studies now, are collaborating in genetic studies, and the first thing we want to find out is, are they really identical twins? The parents claim that they are, and we're going to recheck that. Once again, the reason for the interest in children is because we want to find out the, the age at which this is first recognized by children, uh, we have younger children now who are 10 years old who have the ability going back to the age of five and a little bit earlier than that. So this is not a, um, an ability which is acquired later in life. It appears fairly early on. How early, we don't yet know. Now here is a distribution of the, um, of the ability of people who have what we call HSAM or highly superior autobiographical memory. And uh, on the right, 
um, in the white and blue, you see the distribution of the percent correct on a 30-question quiz of the kind that I've already uh, talked about, ranging from, um, let's say, 35% correct up to 75% correct. On the left in orange, you see controls, age and sex match controls. Uh, and you can see that this is not, this ability is not the end of an extreme end of a normal distribution. It is a different distribution. Also, you can see some white on the left mixed with the orange. These are people who claimed that they had the ability and were just like controls. If you look on the far left, there are four people who claim they had the ability and they are worse than controls. <laughs> We gave um, the best of those a 10-day quiz asking uh, for 10 dates that we selected, the day of the week, a verifiable event that happened on that day, an autobiographical event which we did not check, but they claimed it was autobiographical. And what you can see is in the blue are the people that have this ability, and the orange are us. And you can see that uh, they get about 14% correct on day of the week, which is uh, one out of seven, by the way. Uh, they uh, have no verifiable event, and I see. So you can see they're quite different. Uh, we also gave them an autobiographical memory test, and here they, we validated. We asked them the first day at university, first day at elementary school, so on down the list that you can see, and we've actually got all of the data to support all of that. Our HSAM subjects gave 145 verified details. Controls gave a total of 24 details, which we did not bother to verify. <laughs> All right, here are some characteristics. These uh, folks are highly accurate in autobiographical remembering. They are not at all exceptional in learning in laboratory tests. We've done a lot of, of uh, experimental psychology types of tests with them, and they're absolutely, on average, normal. One thing that is of interest, they also shine signs of compulsiveness, and they show some differences in brain regions. So I'll show you quickly here. Here's a region of the uncinate fasciculus, which is a fiber pathway that goes from the temporal lobe up to the frontal lobes, and this is more um, uh, obvious in, uh, in MRI, structural MRI. It's also a region that is found to be deficient in people who have highly deficient autobiographical memory. Uh, the parahippocampal gyrus, which is not too much of a surprise because that region has been implicated in memory and also found in people who have strong memory of other kinds. And the lentiform nucleus, which is in the region of the, of the caudate nucleus, which has, uh, some studies have shown to be uh, significant, um, significantly observed in people who have um, obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, and all of our people score highly on obsessive-compulsive tests, and they also dis display obsessiveness, germ avoidance, uh, and other things. I have a time I could tell you some very interesting things about what they avoid. So here are some important questions. Um, first, what insights can we learn about memory? Is it strong storage of information, or is it exceptional retrieval? We don't think it's simply exceptional retrieval because it's exceptional retrieval of their own autobiographical experiences, not of other things. We even did an experiment in which we gave them some information and then they had a discussion with the experimenter and they were tested later on. They remembered everything that they said and nothing that the experimenter said. 
So it, it, it is all about them. Uh, is there uh, uh, involvement of ero- emotional arousal? Well, that's what I do for a living. That's my main research. And yet we have plenty of examples of them remembering pretty banal things. You saw the list uh, that I showed you. Uh, my favorite example is our first subject. I asked uh, ask her if she knew who Bing Crosby was, and she said, yes. She would have been very young, maybe in her teenage years. I said, do you know what happened to him? And she said, oh, yes, he died on a golf course in Spain, and she gave me the date and the day. And I said, how did you know that? She said, well, my mother was driving me to a a soccer game, and the news came on over the radio. And she remembers that to this day. Um, Is there a genetic basis? We are studying that at the present time. We don't know. Uh, Neurobiological implications, I think this is the most important one, and this has been touched on already in this symposium. These, uh, these individuals not only can, can give us clues to understanding how their brain works in order to produce this, this really phenomenal uh, uh, memory uh, ability, but by understanding the neural underpinnings of this, we can get a greater understanding of how the brain processes memory. New insights can come from, from this um, uh, ultimately. And then uh, finally, why is this ability so rare? Uh, If memory is so important, I started off by saying it's our most important ability, why is it that we are so poor in what we do? And in a certain way, they are better. William James said, uh, forgetting is as important a function as recollecting. If we remembered everything, we should be on most occasions as ill off as if we remembered nothing. These people remember an awful lot about, in a way, nothing. Uh, uh, Just trivial events, they remember it quite well. Uh, They are unremarkable in other respects. If they were here in the room, and there may be several people here, if you didn't ask memory questions, you would not be able to identify them. They remember for a long period of time, and we need to find out, and our research will continue to do that. Thank you. There's a long uh, history writing about savants uh, uh, who, who emerge in childhood, and um, I'm going to talk a, about a slightly different uh, syndrome. Uh, my friend Alan Snyder in Australia suggested this be called acquired savantism. And so these are people who did not have artistic abilities or talents who, in the setting of neurodegenerative diseases, uh, have acquired new artistic abilities. And this is the group that I lead in San Francisco, uh, and uh, almost everybody in that audience has uh, helped me in in some way in this work. So um, we know a lot about uh, art and the brain uh, from lesions, uh, whether it's brain tumors, uh, strokes, uh, brain trauma. Um, And there are certain themes that have emerged. uh, one is that uh, the right posterior parts of the brain, parietal lobe in particular, are essential for the ability to copy and probably along with the right temporal lobe uh, conjure up images that we want to put on a, a, a piece of uh, a paper. Um, the smallest lesion in that uh, brain area will devastate uh, the ability to copy. Um, not as bad as Dan's artwork, but along that spectrum. Um, <laughs> Yeah, okay. So um, less, a little bit less known, I'm going to touch on this today, about the uh, left side of the brain. But uh, in general, the, the senses that uh, symbolic, linguistic, conceptual aspects of art are associated with uh, 
uh, uh, left hemisphere. And um, with injury to that part of the brain, there is a, a theme in the literature of uh, preservation of the ability to copy. Um, I, I, I began to study this not because not I thought about it, because it sort of uh, ran into me um, in the study of uh, patients that I've seen with neurodegenerative disease. And uh, I was taught going uh, into my fellowship that degenerative diseases hit the brain diffusely. You could ne- learn nothing about the functions of the brain from studying neurodegenerative diseases. But I, but I think we've known really since the time of Pick uh, and Alzheimer that we have two major presenile neurodegenerative conditions. One uh, that affects the front part of the brain uh, often begins in the frontoinsular and sometimes anterior temporal lobes. Uh, that's shown in blue. These are uh, disorders that are called frontotemporal dementias. Uh, they uh, have a uh, lack of uh, Alzheimer pathology, no plaques or tangles. And then Alzheimer's usually a posteriorly predominant disease that affects the hippocampus. So uh, very different anatomy and uh, very different sorts of syndromes that we see in the setting of these uh, two distinctive neurodegenerative conditions. Um, there's been a lot written about art and Alzheimer's disease. I think many people get quite a bit of, of pleasure uh, working in um, with art therapists uh, uh, with uh, Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, I, I think what these disorders tell you is that uh, your art is influenced by the part of the brain that is uh, injured. So because uh, Alzheimer's disease uh, hits the uh, posterior temporal parietal region, sometimes worse on the right than the left, sometimes uh, left worse than the right, uh, you, you lose uh, uh, precision. There tends to be visuospatial difficulty. Um, but some things remain, uh, ability to perceive color, uh, simple shapes. This is one of my patient's uh, uh, paintings, uh, uh, Megan Fox. Uh, I, I think quite a, a beautiful piece, a very nice use of color. I think very typical of what we see in the setting of Alzheimer's disease. And of course, uh, fine artists like de Kooning, um, uh, uh, William Untermullen were uh, profoundly disrupted in their ability to uh, produce uh, images of complex faces, uh, uh, complex uh, shape, and were left with very simple, simple forms like this. In front of temporal dementia, uh, there's a different sort of story. And um, uh, this is a paper we wrote in 1998, uh, focused on the emergence of new artistic skills uh, after the disease onset. Um, the theme was that uh, visual creativity was more common when the anterior temporal lobes or the left frontal lobe uh, was where the focal degeneration began. These are often called primary progressive aphasias because they affect language. Um, but remarkably, in some individuals, we see an emergence of visual creativity. Um, wrote about that in 1998. Didn't understand the mechanism very well. Uh, starting to understand the circuitry that uh, we think emerges in the setting of this loss of function in the dominant uh, uh, hemisphere. So this was a patient, uh, Jack, that got me interested in this story. He was a banker. He he lived in Santa Barbara. They did a special on him on ABC News. And uh, Jack had never had the slightest interest in art. 
In the 1980s, uh, his wife died, he became depressed, he started working with an art therapist um, and uh, uh, started painting. Uh, what I learned about Jack is he painted repetitively. He did many of the pictures that uh, I saw over and over again. Uh, this compulsive need to paint, uh, I think, was one of the reasons that his painting was so interesting and successful. Um, this is, I think, one of his uh, masterpieces. Uh, when I saw him um, uh, around 1995, Jack uh, was obsessed with painting profoundly aphasic, uh, uh, had lost many of the words, particularly nouns. Um, uh, he uh, drew this uh, parrot that he remembered uh, from Hawaii, yet couldn't tell me what this painting was. Obsessed with the colors purple and yellow. Uh, uh, like many of these patients, completely unable to get him to describe uh, the art of creating or why he did it. Uh, the phrases I heard over and over again was, uh, uh, yellow and purple wave over me. So uh, uh, he became obsessed with painting. He painted purple things and yellow things over and over again, progressively lost social skills and language, visually profoundly preoccupied. Uh, Jack used to walk the streets of Santa Barbara with his caretaker looking for coins. Uh, when I visited him uh, in Santa Barbara, uh, was sitting at the table. Immediately, he says, it's raining. Now, he had, un had uncanny, I think, uh, ability to uh, focus visually. So um, Jack produced these series of paintings. Uh, this is a slightly later one, I think very Fauvist uh, in style. You can see an interesting uh, strategy where the sail is both the background and the cell. Um, losing some of the precision that he had, uh, I think as the disease uh, creeps into the parietal lobes more posteriorly. Um, a slightly later piece where he is really losing the ability uh, in the way an Alzheimer patient might uh, uh, paint precisely. Uh, again, that theme of purple and yellow, uh, Jack's obsession. And then finally, one of the last pieces he ever did, uh, I think quite whimsical, beautiful uh, uh, picture of a man. Uh, as he lost the ability of paint, uh, this was replaced by the compulsion to brush his teeth. He did this over and over again. Um, and as we learned uh, uh, later, Jack had a form of frontotemporal dementia, very interesting form that has been called uh, semantic dementia or semantic uh, variant of primary progressive aphasia. It's a subtype of frontotemporal dementia. It was what Pick described in 1892. It affects predominantly the two anterior temporal lobes. When it affects the left side, which most of my artists uh, uh, come from this group, uh, you lose uh, your knowledge about words. Uh, uh, you, you lose your knowledge eventually about things in the world. Uh, unlike Alzheimer's disease, the naming deficit isn't improved by clues. They don't know what that word means. Um, the anatomy is very focal. Um, so I, I think as these individuals lose uh, function in the amygdala, anterior temporal lobes, uh, orbital frontal cortex, there's disinhibition, progressive language uh, disturbance, but often visual-spatial skills are profoundly spared. These are people whose only point on a cognitive uh, test is uh, uh, drawing a complex visual figure. So this is, uh, you know, something that is often spared in these individuals. And in a subgroup, uh, there is the new emergence of uh, interest in painting and uh, increased uh, visual creativity. 
I always thought this was first described by a neurologist, but uh, on a trip to uh, Columbia um, around 2006, uh, I was reading 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and I came across uh, his description, the first description of semantic dementia, uh, I think, in the literature. It's the town of Macondo. People are dying of a sleeping sickness. Um, and he describes what happens uh, uh, to them. He discovered he had trouble remembering every object in the laboratory. Uh, he didn't know what they were. He marked them with their respective names so that all he had to do was read the inscription in order to identify him. This is a cow. She must be milked every morning so that she will produce milk. And the milk must be boiled in order to be mixed with coffee. Uh, uh, gorgeous description. They went on living in a reality that was slipping away, momentarily captured by words, but sh which would escape irremediably when they forgot the values of written letters. Um, so around the time that uh, I discovered this uh, piece from Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, we had a patient very much like uh, the villager in M Macondo. Um, so this is my patient, Bob who, like many of these individuals, know that they're losing words, know that they're losing knowledge about facts uh, in their world. And you can see here, uh, just like uh, Garcia Marquez's description, uh, he's putting down these names, these words, compulsively, repetitively, Foley catheter, endocarditis. Uh, uh, he knows that his world is slipping away just in the way Gabriel Garcia Marquez described it. I don't think, uh, and be glad to talk about this with anyone online, offline, that Marquez actually saw a case of semantic dementia. I think he was writing about his own writer's block, and I think this is what he conceptualized at the time. So we couldn't resist. This is Bob's, uh, who uh, drew a cow quite beautifully. Uh, his elephant, I think, rather whimsical. Um, certainly better than Dan and I could do, I think, in a copy. So, yeah. so um, this is a degenerative disease. Uh, uh, the concepts for these uh, animals, often nouns first, verbs uh, relatively spared, uh, look like they come out of evolution. I appreciated the picture of Darwin earlier. So the dog looks a little bit like a um, cat. It looks uh, like uh, some features of a cow. Um, as similarly, the cat has features of the dog. The, the fish, uh, to me, looks very much like a uh, penguin, but uh, uh, I think as you're uh, watching this patient with semantic dementia uh, lose their conceptual knowledge around what distinctive animals really are. And of course, if you don't know what an animal is, uh, you don't know what color to uh, give it. So we asked this patient to draw the frog uh, and put the color in. Uh, he, he drew a pink frog, not, not the green one, which he should. Um, this is my latest uh, favorite uh, uh, set of pieces. This is gentleman uh, we're going to describe for uh, the journal JAMA. Um, uh, he uh, uh, became obsessed with welding. Uh, he was not an artist. Uh, this is his uh, bird, and you can see it uh, has got that same quality of uh, uh, mixed uh, uh, metaphor. The, the, the bird has features of an insect, um, and I think uh, this really has taught me that uh, what an artist does is put down on a canvas the way that they see the world. Okay, so just a couple conclusion points. Um, 
Uh, our uh, poet laureate, uh, Kay Ryan from Marin County, uh, has uh, taught us at uh, UCSF about the neuroscientist Emily Dickinson. And I think uh, Emily, Emily Dickinson, you know, had a very modern way of thinking about the brain. And so when I was uh, thinking about these uh, patients, I came across this poem by her. Um, and I think uh, she was interested in moral decay, but this is really the decay of neurodegenerative diseases as we understand it in 2017. Crumbling or the dementia is not an instant act, and we now know uh, probably 20 years before we see a patient with one of these diseases that the degenerative process has begun. A fundamental pause, dilapidations, processes, or organized decays uh, totally contradicts the idea that the dementias hit the brain diffusely. These are organized decays in very specific circuits. Other circuits are spared. To this first, a cobweb on the soul. This is the misfolded protein that Rusty Gage, uh, Dan Geshwin uh, uh, talk and write about. Cuticle of dust, a borer in the axis, and elemental rust. Rune is formal, devil's work consecutive and slow. Fail in an instant, no man did. Slipping or the dementing process is Crash's law. So we see the crash, but I think what these artists have told me is that there is a, a period uh, uh, when this process is beginning where certain parts of the brain may be particularly um, uh, 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 immune to the uh, uh, degenerative process. They are spared and possibly uh, begin to remodel, and we've written a little bit about this uh, 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 describing an artist named Ann Adams. Um, so the conclusion is um, it's, I think, a beautiful but also a very sad story. Artistic creativity may emerge with left hemisphere dysfunction. Uh, I think we have some data uh, from the artist Ann Adams that there is rewiring of uh, right posterior uh, parietal regions, a uh, very area that Karen Ber Berman showed is uh, probably uh, dysfunctional in uh, kids with Williams syndrome. Insights into the degenerative process uh, suggest that Sometimes uh, a new strength may herald uh, the uh, degenerative uh, process, but I think understanding people's strengths are critical for diagnosis and care. And I think also this gives us insight into our, our, our humanity, and almost everyone has touched on this. Brain asymmetry is at the core of our strengths, but also at the core of our weaknesses. So thank you. People with synesthesia experience the ordinary world in quite extraordinary ways. For some people, when they look at letters on a page, each letter might have its own distinctive colour, which either appears in the synesthete's mind eye or is perhaps projected onto the page on top of the regular text. For other synesthetes, time and the calendar, for example, or numbers are seen visuospatially as kind of an undulating landscape. And this might serve as a memory aid. So, for example, we see it in the case of Jill Price that was presented earlier. Not only has she got fantastic autobiographical memory, she perceives the years in terms of her own internal landscape of time. This is one of uh, my first case studies of synesthesia, and this is a man who tastes words. As he's listening to me speaking now, each word might have its own distinct flavour on his mouth. And this is his um, representation of the London tube map, the underground. And words for him might taste of celery or sausage meat. He grew up in Britain in the 1960s, where this was your quintessential kind of diet growing up. So he's internalised this in his synesthesia. 
One of the um, first case studies that points to extraordinary ability in synesthesia is this book by Luria called The Mind of a Nemonist. And this is somebody who's described as having an infinite memory, who never forgets things, who can remember sequences of abstract syllables that are presented to him and then recalls them years later, and also has phenomenal autobiographical memory as well. As well as having amazing memory, he also had various kinds of synesthesia, so numbers would elicit uh, colours. Um, the sound of somebody's voice would have both colours, tastes and touch. So he had a multiplicity of different kinds of synesthesia. And this is a case that we've already heard about who has both synesthesia and Asperger syndrome, um, high-functioning autism. So Daniel could recite pi to 20,000 decimal places, a feat which takes around five hours just to say the digits aloud. But what he's doing when he's recalling them is also extraordinary, because for him, the digits is not just a verbal string, it's a visuospatial string that he reads off in his mind's eye. And this is his representation of the first 20 digits of pi. For him, each digit has its own particular colour and its own particular texture and its own position in the sequence that he reads off as he's recollecting this sequence. So these are extraordinary cases. Is synesthesia in general linked to enhanced memory? And if so, why might this be? What we know about synesthetes is that they have differences in their brain, although these aren't well characterised. It's more grey matter and more white matter organisation, at least um, patchy within some regions. One possibility is that you can use synesthesia as a kind of a memory aid. If you see words spelled out, then it might help you to remember them. Uh, You're using your synesthesia as a kind of cognitive tool. The other possibility is that it's something about the brain changes themselves that give rise not only to synesthesia, but also give rise to other particular cognitive phenotypes, such as enhanced memory. And I'll argue in favour of this and present various lines of evidence. So first of all, if we look at the memory ability of people with synesthesia, these are people who experience words and letters as coloured, and we would give them a standard recognition memory test in which we present them with a sequence of, say, 30 words to remember, and then at test we present them with 60 words, some of half of which they saw before and half of which they didn't, and we made them uh, uh, visually similar to try and confuse them, and of course they were presented in a random order, not consecutively like this. But at the end, we also asked, what strategy did you use for memorising them? And actually, when you back-sort people by the kind of strategy they have, yes, these kind of uh, semantic associations have a best strategy, but it doesn't make any difference what strategy you use. If you're a synesthete, you do better uh, on this particular test. Another way of doing it with another group is that you actually give them a strategy. So one is that you can process it deeply. You make semantic judgments about words, such as whether it's living, and the other is you process it shallowly. You ask about the letters in the word. And again, whether or not you process it shallowly or deeply, synesthetes have better memory um, for words here, and they produce fewer um, false alarms, misrecognitions of them. So here, these are verbal stimuli that for these people elicit colours. What about if you look at non-verbal visual stimuli? So these are some of the kinds of stimuli that we presented. So again, here we would have scenes. So we would present them with, say, a series of 30 scenes. And then at test, we'd present them with the same scenes and ones that are very similar, just a little bit different. Or also uh, fractals, very abstract images, which people find very hard. They're very hard to recode verbally or in any other particular way. Or similarly, you can have um, regular coloured scenes, but you can manipulate them in some way. You can reverse it, you can flip the colour, for example, or you can make objects appear or disappear. So this is, again, a difficult memory test. 
What we find here is that Senate seats outperform control. So here what we've got is effect size. So this is a measure of the, the advan- relative advantage of Senate seats over controls. Typically, they have medium effect sizes, but actually they do much better for visual material over verbal material, even though the visual material is not triggering any extra experiences for these uh, people. They describe thinking in visual images. For them, they think in very sensory ways, remembering uh, events is like reliving it in, in your mind's eye. And for some things, they do particularly well. So notice for the fractals, that's actually one of their best things. And these are very hard for people uh, typically to remember. They can hold on to visual patterns very well. So what I would argue here is that synesthesia is linked to enhanced memory. But although you might sometimes use synesthesia as a memory aid, it's probably something more fundamental in terms of the way that their brain is wired, in terms of holding on to visual and sensory information, uh, for example, in these stimuli. What you will also see in these studies is that synesthetes do well on lab tests of memory, but actually their memory isn't so phenomenal that they're going to produce jaw-dropping feats uh, at a party. And some of my colleagues have said, well, hang on, this means that these exceptional cases that we've talked about, they're anomalies. These are the, the outliers. Something different must be going on in these cases. And I've kind of toyed with this idea, but actually we don't necessarily need to look for a different explanation for those who have a small upward shift and for those who have a large one. And all we have to do is just think about uh, the normal distribution. So here, what you've got is a shift of half a standard deviation. So this is at the low end of a medium effect size, very much uh, the, the, the conservative end of what I presented. So the synesthetes are here in the light blue. And what you can do is you can slice up these normal distribution and ask how many people lie in each of these ones. So between naught and one standard deviations, you'll find 38% of synesthetes and 34% of control, so a ratio that favours the synesthetes. But as you move up, in fact, what you find is that it's nonlinear. The synesthetes are very much overrepresented at the extremes here. And if you exceed this, so if you go up to uh, an effect size of 0.8, which again is not unrealistic given some of the data I presented, you see again that it goes up quite astonishingly the amount of synesthetes that you would expect at the high end. So if you put it another way, if you were to give me 1,000 people and you were to rank them in, cord- in, in terms of their memory ability from left to right, and you asked me, can I find a synesthete amongst that uh, distribution, where would I look? Well, I could look where the mean is, because that's where most of the synesthetes are numerically. But the problem with that is that you've also got an awful lot of non-synesthetes who will be performing at that level. The, the best place to look is actually at the 1,000th person on the right. And statistically, that is the person most likely to have synesthesia. And you don't need to do the experiment, it's just maths. But the closest experiment we've done is to take a group of people who perform in memory championships. So there are world rankings for doing bizarre things like remembering uh, the order of a pack of cards in 35 seconds and so on. And we were able to test 18 of these memory athletes and we checked using a valid measure of graphene colour synesthesia, the standard one in the literature, and showed that they, uh, synesthetes are very significantly overrepresented within this group. So the prevalence of graphene colour synesthesia is 1% to 2%. Other types of synesthesia uh, push it up. And we had a group of controls that we uh, tried to select in a similar way. So we've heard a little bit about the relationship between synesthesia and autism. And I came to this quite sceptical. Why would these two very different things be related? But they are related. 
So Simon Baron Cohen and a group in Germany were the first people to actually show that there's an increased incidence of um, synesthesia in autism. So they took a group of people with autism and looked for synesthesia. We also did this ourselves, but amongst the autistic people, we looked at uh, those people who have savant traits and those who don't. These were all high-functioning people with autism, by the way, so they're not uh, at, at the low end of intellectual disability. So what we have here, both of these groups on the left are, have a clinical diagnosis of autism, but some of the autistic people are reporting savant abilities, and this includes things like perfect pitch or calendar calculation. And these people here are far more likely to have synesthesia than the kind of garden variety uh, of uh, people with a diagnosis of autism. So it is linked to autism, but it seems to be linked to special abilities. So as well as looking for synesthetic traits amongst people with autism, you can look for autistic traits amongst people with synesthesia. So one of the things that we did is that we took a standard questionnaire measure of autism that has 50 questions, and the questions are divided into five subscales, so 10 questions in each. Um, four of the subscales actually ask about difficulties, so things like social skills, which people with autism find uh, hard. But there's one subscale that asks about abilities, and that's attention to detail. So here, this particular question is reverse-coded. People with autism are very good at finding the proverbial needle in a haystack. They do very good at where's Waldo uh, kind of puzzles, uh, detecting uh, parts and holes and, and so on. They do good at this. If we give this to a, a group of synesthetes... Um, Again, what we find, so this is a score from 0 to 50. Controls are about 18. Synesthetes are raised significantly. They fall quite considerably below the average of an autistic person. But actually, even this shift, what this means if you model the tail end of the distribution is that you would expect at least twice as many synesthetes to be overrepresented in the, the tail uh, than that. So these small shifts can have large effects at the tail is one of my take-home messages. So here, these are the five subscales, and it looks complicated, but it isn't. In the grey bar, we've got our group with autism, so a high score means that you're high on the spectrum. In blue, you've got your synesthetes, and in orange, you've got your controls. So this is social skills here. What we can see is that for four out of five of these particular things, the synesthetes are indistinguishable from the controls. They're a little bit above them. But for one out of five, the synesthetes are indistinguishable from people with autism. And this is in the attention to detail subscale. And we've subsequently confirmed that using what's called a change blindness paradigm, where you have to notice small changes in uh, scenes that are flickering. So synesthesia, uh, sorry, autism has been defined in terms of these impairments. But in the most recent psychiatric definition, they added sensory um, uh, a sensory symptom, and this was sensory hypersensitivity and also maybe hyposensitivities. So some of the, the, the things might be finding bright lights, particularly aversive or giving you a headache and so on. And people have developed various measures uh, of this, again, initially using a, a questionnaire. So this is the one that we use, the Glasgow Sensory Questionnaire. And what we find here is that synesthetes um, are significantly above controls and numerically similar to people with autism on this measure, despite actually not having many of the classic signs uh, of being autistic. We looked at this in more detail. So most of the people we've looked at are these people with graphene colour synesthesia because we have very uh, obvious ways of verifying this in the lab. 
But we can also look at the presence of other kinds of synesthesia. So those people who see time, for example, in these kind of spatial uh, calendars, people who have tastes or flavours in their mouth, people who experience words spelled out as they listen to speech. Some people see it like ticker tape. Or having uh, visual experiences to music. And what we can do, in effect, is we can um, take people and we just say, how many of these have you got? And actually, our synesthetes were asked this question often about three or four years ago when they first volunteered, and we've kept a database of that information. So this is what we find in terms of sensory sensitivity. We have a very clear dose effect between how many types of synesthesia somebody has and how much they report sensory sensitivity on this measure. So this is where people with autism are. If you've got zero types of synesthesia, you're our control group. These are people with one, two, three, and four. You can't read this at the bottom, but these are just different combinations of that five, but you don't need to read it. If you have three types of synesthesia, that is uh, your level of sensory sensitivity on this measure. And this is the proportion of people in these groups who are at the high end of the, uh, the autism spectrum. So people with autism uh, on this measure typically have a score of 32 or above. And what you can see is it goes up dramatically with the more types of synesthesia you have. So there is a clear relationship between synesthesia and autism, but it, it's complex and it's to do with the, the nature of uh, how, how synesthetic your brain is. So... To summarise, what I would say is that synesthesia is linked to certain uh, abilities. It's linked to enhanced uh, memory. It's also linked to some of the traits of autism. It's linked to sensory sensitivity, which I'm not sure whether that's a positive or a negative trait. It's normally cast in terms of a, uh, a negative trait, but uh, whether or not that has particular... Uh, w- whether it is linked to other abilities, I don't know. Attention to detail is a clear ability that is probably driving some of these savant abilities to notice patterns, to notice uh, details in their sensory world. Although synesthetes don't necessarily present with the the triad of impairments that classically define autism, what seems to happen is that you have an increased vulnerability of getting that. In a way, you buy into having the the advantages of autism, but the danger is is that you are more susceptible to getting the negative uh, traits as well. It's almost as if synesthetes are occupying a very interesting cognitive niche where they're sliding up the autistic scale a little bit and getting some of the benefits, but they're not falling over the cliff edge. But you stand a risk of doing that, of course, just by moving up that uh, particular genetic niche. So to conclude, synesthesia is linked to basic differences in brain uh, function. We don't fully understand what those differences are, but my best guess is that it's to do with differences in plasticity, in holding on particularly to sensory information over time, and also to sensory sensitivity, um, both subjectively and probably, again, in terms of uh, cognitive processing. Many of these traits seem to be uh, shared with the positive features of of autism, so abilities, savant characteristics, and so on. Synesthesia is linked to cognitive enhancements in memory, but again, it doesn't seem that synesthesia is just simply a, a mnemonic device or a cognitive tool. Some people do use their synesthesia in that way, but it seems to be a deeper connection between synesthesia and cognitive enhancement. And I guess in terms of a more general conclusion for this symposium is that even medium-sized effects, so the fact that synesthetes are shifted up by a a medium-sized effect, 
means has profound consequences at the tail that you really can overrepresent things at the tail because of the way that these normal distributions go. So it might be that even though most synesthetes aren't exceptional, actually there's something about synesthesia that is really kind of driving things at that uh, high tail end in the exceptional ability zone. Thank you very much for your time. These are my collaborators, and these are some famous synesthetes, none of whom I've worked with. But, uh... You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.